Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gary Milligan, your host. Today we'll be talking with Paola Ugolini, the author of The Court and Its Critics, Anti-Courtly Sentiments in Early Modern Italy, which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. Dr. Ugolini is Associate Professor of Italian and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Buffalo, SUNY. She was also the recipient of a fellowship at the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies at Villa Itaki. Her her publications include many articles, as well as a translation and edition of Veronica Gambare's Complete Poems, where she is the co-editor and co-translator, as well as a freshly minted co-edited volume, A Companion to Pietro Aretino, published by Brill just this summer. Paolo, welcome. I'm truly delighted to speak with you today. Hi, Gary. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for thinking of me for this. uh, Absolutely. Thank you for coming. It was such a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. (laughs) So I I wanted to get started today by maybe just asking you to walk our listeners quickly through the basics. What is anti-court literature? So anti-court literature, or better, anti-court sentiments can be defined as a set of negative depictions of courts and courtiers. One may even talk of a set of topoi because these uh, negative characteristics are more or less the same in all the uh, texts that tackle uh, anti-court sentiments. So in all of these texts, the court is depicted as a real hell on earth a place of deceit, a place of ruthless competition, um, a cradle of vices wherever the most, uh, even the most, the most virtues among men and women will inevitably be corrupted. And those in power, so princes and their wives, you know, court ladies, etc., um, are depicted as fickle, unfair in giving out their favor, um, tyrannical in their attitudes, and um, one's fellow courtiers and ladies in attendance are depicted as backstabbing psychophants. So a place where everything is corrupted, everything is evil, the last place where one would like to would like to live or to have a career, you know. Um, and nothing genuine, nothing good can be found at court. So the court can have a splendid appearance. People are well-dressed and, you know, those princes were patrons of the arts and we very well know. But underneath the surface, everything is fake. Everything is corrupted. What's fascinating to me and one of the reasons why I started working on, on this project was the dissemination of these anti-court topics. They are basically everywhere. So the language of anti-courtliness is a very um, common language in early modern Italy, well, actually in early modern Europe, one may say, because these mentions of the evil courtiers, of the corruption of the court system can be found everywhere. So there seem not to be one single genre or topic that is not touched by, um, 
by these anti-court sentiments. You open a random letter, you know, a random book of letters by someone, and you inevitably get to find a um, letter lamenting the unhappy state of those who live at court. Um, another interesting fact is that, you know, there were positive depictions of the court. However, negative depictions of court and courtiers were much more numerous if you think about it, right? I mean, you don't really find praises of the court. We all know that the courts were splendid and rich, as I said, etc. Um, but um, the other interesting fact, as I was saying, is that anti-courtliness seemed to have won in the long term. Because if nowadays, in current Italian, you call somebody a courtigiano, you're not paying them a compliment, right? It means that they are, you know, uh, it's usually, uh, it's a term that is used, for example, journalists or media personalities in relation to their attitude to current politicians. So if you say that so-and-so journalist is a courtigiano of so-and-so famous politician, you're actually saying that they are kind of like corrupted, that they are only flattering this public figure, etc. So basically, the negative connotation is is what stayed with us in the long term. Sure. Yeah. It sounds so ab- abysmal being at court. Um, <laughs> it totally does. It totally and, does. And you know, it's it it goes, runs so counter to the it's particularly if you think of the artistic representations of courtiers and court. Exactly. The, the, the beautiful, what we have left, what one, one often thinks of, especially if one visits Europe, and, and particularly Italy with so many courts, with these uh, stunningly beautiful castles or courts, and then, of course, the, the clothing. Um, you know, I would venture to guess that most scholars in our field would be hard-pressed to name more than a few authors of anti-court literature, despite the fact that you, you mentioned how it's it's everywhere. We, we often think of uh, the more notable books, which are maybe like the court courtier, which are somewhat, somewhat more pro-court, even though I know that you problematize that. And I think I'm right in saying that you're the first to actually tackle this literature systematically. So how, you know, you, you mentioned that you see it everywhere, but how did you come to the idea? And how did you find this, you know, treasure trove of so many primary sources? For those who haven't read the book yet, I mean, you really cover, I don't know, I didn't count them, but many, many, many primary Too many. Sources. Too many. <laughs> In hindsight. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to say something more about what you said um, mm. about this splendid, you know, surface of the court. And I, I was recently at the Metropolitan Museum and I saw the, the fantastic exhibit on the Medici. Oh, it's wonderful. To, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and to think that those people that you see in those amazing portraits by Bronzino and Pontorm and others, uh, so well-dressed, so elegant, and even nowadays we're like, why don't we dress like them anymore, you know? <laughs> the, the notion that they may have been so unhappy, it's really it's, it's intriguing to me. But anyway, yeah, so what you were saying, it seems that this unhappiness, this uneasiness, uh, being a court did, did not concern only uh, a few uh, major personalities. So, of course, you know, when I first got interested in this topic, my starting points were Ariosto, Tasso, Aretino, you know. And it was just after a while, as I was proceeding with my research, that I realized that there were many, many more that um, confronted the same, the same issues. So um, my book, as it is the case for many books, was originally a dissertation project. And the dissertation, you know, in turn, was originally a paper for for a graduate class. So while I was researching for this paper and then for my dissertation, as I said, I read Ariosto Satire. Ariosto is kind of, you know, my guy, my my personal favorite author. And I worked a lot on Aretino, uh, someone who I really like as well, you know, so so funny and creative, etc. And then, of course, as I was mentioning, Tasso's very conflicted relationship uh, with the court, and I got really fascinated by um, the topics that these three people whose career was so different, whose personalities were so different, who lived in slightly different time periods, you know, Tasso's a little bit later. Um, I was surprised by noticing that they had uh, this, you know, common experience with, with the court. 
And when I started doing research, I realized that there was not much published about this. And so, you know, like any dutiful graduate student, I was like, aha, this is an explored topic. We can do something new, you know? We always, we academics are always afraid that we're not gonna find anything original, anything that hasn't been studied yet. But anyway, um, so there, there was, as you said, there was no comprehensive study of this text, at least for what concerned the Italian tradition. So I'm not the first to tackle anti-courtliness systematically because there is a um, 1966 study on French anti-court text. Um, the author's name is uh, Pauline Smith. And a seven, 1973 book um, in German um, called Hofkritik on medieval German texts against, uh, against the court. But as I said, I didn't find anything systematic on you know, Italian literature and Italian anti-courtliness. But when I started work, working on this project, you mentioned, you know, all the, the sources that I quote, and I told you there are even too many. Um, and it happened because I was worried that I was going to find enough sources for a book project, you know, aside from Aretino and Adios, etc. And I have to say, I was soon disabused. And I had so much material at this point that I wanted to cry because it was like, I'm never going <laughs> to be finished with this book. And I had to stop friends and colleagues from, from sending me more. Oh, another source, <laughs> yes. Another source. Like, I, found this, I found this sonnet against the court. It may be ideal for your book. And I was like, no, please, I just can't. <laughs> and so so I, I was really like drowning in, in sources at this point. And I think this speaks volumes of how important this issue of the relationship with the court was for people of the, of the time, right? I'm wondering, I don't know, in 500 years, people are going to find all these writings on, I don't know, fake news, right? <laughs> and things like that. And like once well, <laughs> you know, certainly, certainly today, the uh, people who have been presidential advisors seem to all write a book about how unhappy they were as they advised Nixon or you know, later on. Trump or whatever, but I, I do think that this ubiquity of sources that you say you found um, is what's so striking for the fact that we haven't had a, a study on it. I mean, when I first heard about your project, I think probably when it was in, even when it was in the dissertation stage, I, I thought, well, what is, what is that? What is this, you know, I mean, I, we know certain authors, right? We know how unhappy, you know, Aretino's particularly comes to mind, but or Ariosto. Um, but I think this ubiquity speaks to something. It's strange that we missed it. I don't know if we don't want to see it. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on how, why it's gotten missed as a, as a genre even? Mm. Well, most of these texts are boring in a way. <laughs> That's a good point. Right. <laughs> it is a good point. Some of them yeah. are actually funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is that, you know, it is a set of topoi. And so uh, I think the general uh, con- the, the general understanding among scholars is, was that there was not much to say about them, right? Because those those texts they they all look the same after a while. You read one, you read them all, and um, you know people were thinking why why uh, should we have a systematic analysis of something that is so repetitive in a way, right? Well, um, you make it not boring at all, and I, I think, Elena, you. Let's, yeah, let's let's get on to that because I think what you do is you you actually show that they're not repeating themselves; that there are some significant differences and nuances. Your so your book for for everyone who hasn't read it, your book covers the anti court literature or the topoi, as you say, across many genres, right? And you divide mm-hmm. the material in chapters based on figures, not on not on genres. So we have the courtier, the lady, the satirist. And the shepherd. So, if we take them separately, you know, in the first chapter, one I think one of the most compelling elements of the conduct books that that you mention are the ambivalent feelings that the authors mm-hmm. express about the court. Um, yeah. I really think that you've picked out that's maybe one of the most one of the two I think maybe most interesting aspects of this literature is ambivalence. And so, maybe you can explain what you found to be ambivalent in these texts. Yeah. Um, so as you said, when I started writing the book, I realized that the problem that I had was to have to uh, organize this material that I had. Mm. And that's 
how I came up with the idea of the four figures because I had to, you know, put all of this material into, let's call them drawers, right? And I, I remember when I had the idea, I was really desperate because I didn't know how to structure the book. And I was running in the park and I said, <laughs> oh, well, I could do this. And I never ran faster in my entire life because I just wanted to go home, you know, and write what I had in, in mind. It's in a great day. feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the first I decided that I had, I felt like I had, I had to start from the court here, you know, the figure that is really at the center of all the, this discussion on you know, the court, uh, both in the normative uh, conduct books and as a re the reactions to that um, in anti-court literature. And you're right in talking about the ambivalent feelings uh, about the court. So, you know, this text that we're talking about, the text that I described in my first chapter, are manuals for uh, prospective courtiers. So books that were written for people who planned to go to court and they were hoping to be successful there and have a career, etc. So, you know, one would expect that this book may present a um, kind of positive picture of the court, and yet it's often the, the opposite. And even the Castiglione's book of the court here, as you said, that it's generally understood as the foundation of the art of courtliness, right, all over Europe, um, doesn't shy away from some kind of negative representations of the court. They are not very explicit. They are often very nuanced. You know, there are sort of hints that the reader must decode in a way. But it is there. But as we move towards the, uh, the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th century, the tone really changes. Because later conduct books are often pretty open in pointing out the unflattering aspects of, of life at court. However, despite this attitude, you know, despite the cynicism and the negativity, um, these conduct books still show some feelings of attraction towards the court on the, on the part of the author. So the, 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 this feature, this ambivalence, I mean, is fascinating because it's present in anti-court satires as well. So it's present in books that actually offer advice on how to succeed at court using whatever means, you know, you have to succeed. Um, and yet they're like, you know, showing some kind of attraction for that. But even in texts that attack the court, texts written by people who are like, you know, I left the court and that was the best decision in my life, never been happier still they have some residual attraction for that for that environment. So one gets the feeling that these people, these others, they wanted to be at court and they did not want to be there. They kind of I mean, could not get free from it, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that, that you do such a nice job of, of, of discussing that. And I wonder if the attraction of court, I mean, I think it's easy to lay... Uh, money as, as of course, an attractive factor, but I think there's more to it. There seems to be a, a, I mean, you don't quite do a psychoanalysis of the courtier, but I think that you're finding something other than just riches as the draw to be at the court. I don't know if you want to even totally, reflect on totally, that for a second. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was the money. It may have been the, the, you know, the drive for success, but I think the largest part, it was really the fascination that this environment had on people. Uh, of course, you wanted to be there because the court was the place where everything happened. Mm -hmm. uh, for most people who came from you know, the middle classes, but even from people who were noble born, but may have come from um, kind of a provincial setting, the court was really the place where you could make it, right? So in a way, I think uh, the attitude of early modern people towards the court may be similar to the attitude that some people have for the most ruthless environments in finance, where it's mm -hmm. basically killing you with hours of extra work and you'd be there. Or, you know, even we academics sometimes are like, oh, I'm so done with academia. I'm going to buy you know, a house in the countryside, you know, and start raising cattle or something like that. We have these fantasies, right? There are pastoral fantasies, even in uh, and I will, we will get to that. I'm going to be an olive farmer in that fantasy. <laughs> oh my God, I want your olive oil. So this would we be... We don't leave almost... in the end, you know? That, that's the point. We don't leave because it's so much part of somebody's identity, right? 
Like you, you, I do think you, it helps explain how even today why why people are drawn to work for maybe despicable, uh, even people that they find despicable leaders mm-hmm. and as press secretaries or communication directors, and then of course eventually write the book. Um, but I, that ambivalence I found so interesting, and I think it really helps us also understand maybe reread books, as you mentioned, like The Courtier, that are not simply, um, they, they are not simply praises of courts, but they, you know, they, they, they sort of walk a, a line between both mm-hmm. condemnations and praise. Um, you know, I, I also, in, in the second chapter, I really enjoyed the way that you drew a line between anti-feminism or misogyny, I don't think you used that word, but, um, and anti-courtliness. Uh, one actually that caught my eye is the relationship between the courtesana or the courtesan and the courtier. And yeah. so how, how are those two figures associated in the texts? So the, the two words, uh, courtesan, courtigiana, and courtier, courtigiano, are of course semantically related. And there are many studies um, that, um, that I quote in my book that tackle precisely this issue that the courtier and the courtesan are not so dissimilar from each other because for both of them, their profession entails some form of selling oneself to someone in power in exchange for money and favors. And this is, you know, this is not me. These were studies that were done uh, before I, I, I wrote my book. Mm-hmm. And this, this literature that I base my, my analysis on also uh, points out how court intellectuals, courtiers, right, satirize courtesans because they want to distance themselves from from this association, right? So anti-courtesan satire is often being interpreted as a way for courtiers to mark their difference, saying, you know, I'm not a public woman, right? I am a man of integrity mm-hmm. and moral, etc. So when we get to anti-court satires, what is interesting is that the courtier is satirized precisely because he behaves and looks like a courtesan, like a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So the courtiers are satirized for their manicured appearance, for the use of perfume, for the beautiful golden locks, etc. So there's the issue of masculinity here that you know very well since you're the leading scholar on early modern masculinity, right? So, you know, part of that is that they are satirized for being not only unmasculine, but for looking like a prostitute. Mm. And, um, but there's even more. So in Italian, the court, la corte, is feminine, right? It's a feminine word. So in anti-court satire, the court is, is treated like a woman. And it's very easy for satirists to take the extra step and make la corte become la cortigiana. Mm-hmm. So, the court so is personified into the figure of a prostitute, really. And really, and, and these, you know, um, these, these prostitutes, the early modern uh, prostitutes, were uh, satirized because they uh, were represented as gold diggers, basically, people mm-hmm. who enticed the suitors. And uh, they put on the show only to steal their money, and they kind of, um, make, made them addicted to them so that they spent all of their money on these beautiful young women, etc., etc. And so the court is personified in the same way. She becomes this beautiful, dangerous woman who uh, takes from men all they have. And this is where the language of misogyny is used to talk about uh, the court and the kind of ambiguous love and hate relationship that people have with the court that I discussed earlier. Well, it's interesting because you have this ambivalence mirrored, as you just said, with possibly the ambivalence that men might feel towards uh, prostitutes, uh, sort of an attraction in this revulsion that seems to we see over and over within uh, the 16th century literature, and then that imposed on the actual court. But then there's, you know, we've we've seen so long this... um, courtiers being compared to courtesans as, uh, you know, that studies. Mm-hmm. That I think what you do so nicely is you, you you sort of show how this is actually already within the text, that this is actually overtly within these texts. That the, but what I find at, on one more level strange about this is these texts are often written by courtiers themselves. So it's it seems one wonders if it's a self-attack, if 
they themselves, I don't know how you feel about the, the actual author satirizing the courtier as a courtesan when that author himself, these are often male authors, have, have, were once courtiers too. That's a very fascinating point. I mean, it's kind of, how can I say, a redemptive narrative for some of them. They're like, you know, I used to be like that, but now I'm out of it. I'm no longer like that. Or even when I was at court, I was different. I wasn't uh, behaving in that way. I wasn't making a fool of myself like other courtiers do. Uh, yes. And it's also a way for them to proclaim their liberation from the charm of the court slash courtesan, even though they, you know, at the end of the day, are still very much attracted to that to that figure, as I said, because this love you know, love relationship persists. And it's fascinating because they really use the word love. They use the, the language of, of Petrarchan love, of courtly love, to talk about the court. So it's not just metaphorical, it's kind of, you know, literal, right? Well, that helps us understand the ambivalence question, right? The yeah. how do we couch this uh, attraction to the court? And, you know, this um, really leads us very nicely into the next chapter, which is the, the satirist, which is really about who are these um, people writing. And so in chapter three, you you really dig into the notion that courtliness in, you know, you talk about the authors, but like that court, courtliness involves changing one's identity to suit another. Um, and this is a topic I have to say that's always been fascinating to me for in terms of masculinity, right? The the notion of agency or the notion of having to um, conform one's identity to suit another as as possibly being seen as some sort of effeminacy. And you discuss how satirists differ from, so in Castiglione's book of the courtier. So you, you sort of take up Ariosto and you say, for example, for Ariosto, courtliness is a distortion of the self. And and you know, I, this this made me think. I think a lot about Castiglione. I think a little bit less about Ariosto and his satires, but um, but I, I I love them. But I, you know, I, I think a lot about Castiglione, and I wonder if this isn't true also in Castiglione, but it's just a difference in emphasis. Whereas Castiglione might see being protean as a mastery of a skill or sprezzatura, whereas Ariosto might see that same maneuvering as objection. Or maybe you see it differently. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, so uh, the authors. So the majority of these people, people writing anti-court satires, were people who had some direct experience with the court. You know, Ariel, Saratino, and Tasso, the three of them did. But there's also people, I quote one relevant example, this man called uh, Giovanni Agostino Caccia, who did not, according to uh, in studies, according to what we know about him so far, I seem not to have had a career at court. And so I thought it was funny because even people who uh, were never actually involved with the court felt that they had to say something about it, which I understood as sign that the topic was so relevant to people of the time that um, even those who were not directly affected by the court felt the need to write something, to write something about it. And um, so, you know, the, the, the issue of selfhood is actually what gave me the uh, central idea for the book and what became, in a way, the central, the central theme of my book. So, it's kind of a complex topic, so please bear with me. Feel free to, feel free to interrupt me if I'm taking too much time. But, uh, so yeah, in Castiglione, the Protean self is, felt, is described as a sign of the perfect courtier. Right? If someone is able to adapt seamlessly to all kinds of situations, all kinds of personalities they may get in touch with, it's really proof that they are mastering the art of courtliness. My argument in my book is that there is a growing uneasiness with this kind of self, with this kind of protean self, and this protean self becomes to be perceived as a loss of one's true identity. And what you were saying about uh, masculinity, I mean, this notion of having to adapt as a sign of 
effeminacy. I totally agree on this point because, you know, in Aristotelian terms, the woman was understood to be un- imperfect, to be less formed than the man, to be less stable. And so this shape-shifting, this changing, this molding oneself was the contrary of what the perfect, stable, strong male self was supposed to be, right? Um, but in, in books on courtliness, so in these conduct manuals that we were talking about, um, the court is described as the place where you have to adapt to a variety of different lifestyles and tastes. One, because you have to live in a co- collective environment, so you have to adapt to all the kind of people you may get, get in touch with. Um, but most of all, you have to model your habits, your tastes, etc., on whatever suits the prince. You want to be loved by the prince, and so you have to force yourself to love what the prince loves and to hate what the prince hates, right? But it gets even you know deeper than that because in these satires, people describe not being free to decide what they eat, at what time they eat, uh, when is their bedtime, when they have to wake up. Some of them complain that they have to stay awake for long hours because the prince does not want to go to sleep. And then the following morning, he was he wants to go hunting at five a.m. and everybody needs to be up up at five a.m. routing their horse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Um, you cannot decide what you wear because you have to present a certain image of yourself, and you cannot decide what you like and dislike. Um, there's a fantastic scene in the beautiful movie, one of the best movies ever made, I think, on the uh, Renaissance. I'm not a movie person, but which is Il Mestiere delle Armi by Ermanno Olmi. And there's this, this, this representation of the Mantua court listening to some singer performing Renaissance music, and everybody appears to be so bored, you know, but they have to be there <laughs> because clearly the prince liked it. Uh, so all of this has to be done to please the prince. And all of these things, they, they may seem trivial to us, but for people who lived at court, it created a real sense of, of uneasiness, right, of losing uh, their one personality, losing oneself, in the prince, you know, in the court, basically. Uh, so contrary to that, the satirists advocate for themselves the persona of someone who's totally genuine, totally sincere, almost brutally, brutally honest, right? And this rustic but genuine persona, I believe, becomes the antidote to this continuous shape-shifting required by the art of courtliness. So these people say, you know, I want to eat what I want to eat, I want to go to bed when I feel tired, I want to like what I like and dislike what I dislike. But also, there's the issue of language. And they say, I want to, you know, one of them um, says, voglio dire pane al pane e vino al vino, right? And in Italian, it's a way of saying it means to call things by their own name. So I want to speak freely and truly because the language of the court is perceived as a distorted language, a language that never conveys truth. So the satirist reacts by uh, going back to themselves in a way, by presenting a picture of themselves as completely honest, completely sincere, completely genuine, truthful, etc. As I said, almost brutally so, in a complete opposition with uh, the persona that one has to show at court to to be successful. So, you know, you led by saying that some of these authors are not even members of the court. Um, it would seem strange that, I mean, are they, are, they, are they only then satirizing the court? Are they also, are they also showing this same sense of um, seeking some sort of agency for themselves? I'm wondering if there's a difference in, you know, we talked about how the texts maybe aren't actually identical, even though they might seem repetitive. I mean, are you mm-hmm. seeing a difference in texts as you move along, particularly around this topic of the individual? Um, well, the satirist that I was quoting was this Katja, uh, mm-hmm. who um, writes a satire responding to a hypothetical signore who seems to have invited him at court. And previous studies say that there is no actual proof that this really happened, but he, he's the one who sets the condition for his hypothetical acceptance of a position at court, pointing out what kind of meat he wants to eat and what kind of wine and it's bedtime and what he likes and does not like to do 
Um, so, you know, I find it intriguing that someone, someone who have not been at court for, for what we know about him so far, or that, you know, was, had not actually been invited by a signore to join the court, had to put up the show. Mm. Um, as for differences among these texts, yes, there, there are differences, but I think deep down they all um, tackle this issue of uh, a perceived loss of agency and a perceived loss of um, sincerity, of genuineness, and a desire to uh, go back to reaffirming one's uh, selfhood, we can say. Well, you know, um, even Alberti in his Mm -hmm. Books of the Family, in in book four, calls the problem of serving at court as having to be a chameleon, he mentions. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned, well, one thing that I'm curious about, since you are the now only person to have read probably all of these texts that that uh, in in the at least in a fat in at least through a lens that looks at anti-courtliness and across time you know you already mentioned earlier on that that you felt that you could see a change as the 16th century moved that the texts became more negative, at least more overtly negative about, about the court as the century moves on. And there are some studies about how parallel to this, that there are expressions of the need to be, to, to dissimulate, right? The, the, in fact, by the time we get to the 17th century, the book Honest Dissimulation comes out where uh, someone com- comes out and says it's okay to dissimulate. It's honest because you you have to do it because princes sort of push you into this place where. And and so I wonder if you see a change over time. Maybe this is unfair to ask of you because you know you didn't actually ask yourself this question. And I know it's a lot to do now in retrospect, but do do you see a change over time? It, around this point, around mm-hmm. this notion of ex- self-expression uh, that that you would be willing to. To like you know, you know, postulate or hypothesize now. Well, um, hmm. yes and no. I mean, the topic of dissimulation is fundamental because as we progress, as you, as you said, it becomes more and more important to be able to simulate and to dissimulate. So, if you think of the difference, which has been very well studied, between the book of the courtier and Tasso's Malpiglio. Tassos Montpiglio is much more cynical and is much more invested in the necessity of dissimulation. At the same time, you know, satires, I think that this uh, uneasiness that I was describing with having to hide uh, parts of oneself becomes more and more felt as we progress. However, satire also declines as we move towards wow. the, the 17th century for a variety of reasons. Um, the genre was not perceived to be appropriate um, after, you know, the Catholic Reformation. It was kind of a potentially dangerous genre. It may also have been, I don't want to you know, speculate anything because really uh, this is not what I you know, researched, but in, there may, may have gone out of fashion, but mm-hmm. satire steadily declines toward the end of the 16th century only to reappear much later. When we have, you know, the great later explosion of, of satirical text. Um, so there is a change, as I was saying. However, um, at some point you start to have less and less uh, satires in general. So it's also difficult to point out for that reason because the, the genre becomes less and less popular. Uh, yeah, that's well. I mean, and one wonders with, and this is really speculation, so we won't maybe do it, but the, even if the nature of courts change over over the time period and therefore create different types of literature. Yeah, I mean, what we know, the general understanding, you know, what's pointed out by, by historians is that courts becomes much more centralized, you know, more and more centralized, we proceed. And um, we, we go towards absolutism at some point, right? So princes have more and more power and historical studies, you know, I'm quoting secondary literature here, um, 
point to the simulation become, becoming more necessary because princes have more power and they're less willing to accept even the hypothetical idea of a counselor, which was Castiglione's dream in the book of the courtier. Right. Right. Yeah. So I have to ask you, in this chapter, you quote Amadeo Quondam's theory that anti-court literature is actually antifrastic. Yeah. And so Quondam says that anti-court literature is, in effect, just another aspect of court literature that argues mm -hmm. for the necessity of being a courtier. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. I do. I do. So quantum studies show that these texts may have a paradoxical effect so that people felt like they had to try themselves out and to succeed at court. And this is part of the ambiguous dynamics that we have discussed earlier, this rejection and attraction for the court, right? And this kind of understanding, while ambitious young men may have felt that if the court was this place where, you know, only one in a million could succeed, they wanted to say, well, maybe I'm the one in a million, you know, they wanted to try it. Mm. Um, at the same time, I also tried to change the perspective. And this is why I focused on selfhood, you know, by, fo by focusing on selfhood. Um, so the commonplace, even now, is that the Renaissance was the time that saw the birth of the modern individual, right? So Bocas theory of this triumphant individual is still largely quoted even nowadays. Mm. And the sources I analyzed, they show a very different a very different aspect. So a Renaissance selfhood that was in crisis. And that the reason for this crisis was precisely the power structure, you know, the, 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 the court uh, that allegedly in Burka's theory led to the formation of the modern individual. So again, you have this, you know, dynamic People say that, you know, Burkhardt, of course, his theory has been revised, et cetera, et cetera. But he may not have been totally wrong in talking about uh, a change in the notion of individuality and of selfhood, even though it may not have happened for the reason he was saying. So this his notion of this triumphant individual that emerged out of the tyrannical state uh, has been nuanced. But at the same time, you see this opposite dynamic, how this very same power structure we're creating a, a um, we're creating a crisis in the notion of this triumphant individuality. So these people were were pushed actually to uh, lose their individuality, as I was saying, to conform, you know, to to mold themselves, to be these chameleons and mold themselves to someone else. And this created this situation of you know, it's a kind of schizophrenic situation of crisis and ambiguity that I was describing. But nonetheless, there's a. What's interesting is there's a self awareness of the process that's happening. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I and, agree. Which yeah. is fascinating, and which is yeah. possibly what Burkhart, what drew Burkhart to this conclusion, which you know has been, as you said, revised. But um, mm -hmm. well, the last chapter I think is so fascinating because you these these books seem to set up a, a, almost a utopian model, right? A utopian model, yeah. which is oh, the yeah. pastoral mode. And it suggests yeah. that the rural shepherd ends up being the foil to the courtier. Uh, this is my olive farmer. And yeah. as you mentioned, <laughs> academics who dream of, I thought that was so funny. The academics who dream of moving to some sort of pastoral yeah. life and raising yeah. goats and making goat milk yeah. soap or something. Um, but it seems that the overarching theme is that the pastoral allows the courtier to regain a sense of individuality, maybe part of this redemptive narrative, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess this, you know, my question is sort of a, a large one here. Does, do you think that this anti-courtly literature in the pastoral just comes down to a loss of agency or is there other commentary that you see at work? So the pastoral literature and its relationship with the court, it's, something that is extremely complicated. I was talking about this at that conference uh, in Italy, I mean, a virtual conference in Italy. And actually, we were discussing it as a campo minato, no? because the, the, that's exactly what it is. It's so, it's so weird. So the pastoral has a complicated relationship with the court. It is a quintessentially courtly genre. It was the kind of representation that was popular at court. People loved it, etc. But it's also an anti court genre, right? There are numerous anti-court episodes in pastoral text, uh, and the life that the shepherds lead is presented as opposite to the court. So Tasso's Aminta is extremely complicated because 
there is an anti-court speech that then is denied, you know, it, and transformed into a praise for the court, etc. But if one thinks of the Jerusalem Liberata, of Ermini among the shepherds, and of the Pastor Fido, you see precisely that dynamic at work, right? You have these characters who have left the court and they move to the countryside and they realize their dream of raising goats and having their olive fields and whatever, right? Like me and you are going to do eventually. <laughs> so the, you have this society that is presented as totally opposite to the court. It's actually the refuge where the, the disenchanted, disillusioned courtiers would go. And yet this society mirrors the court in a way. Uh, not only because in some of these pastoral texts, some of these shepherds are actually court people in disguise. You, you recognize some of the characters, right? Uh, but the activities that they do are worthy of the court. They play songs, they talk about love, love, you know, in the, in the courtly love sense, right? This is the way that we find from love. So the shepherd, in a way, embodies the ideal qualities of the courtier, and, but at the same time recovers that naturalness, that simplicity, that sincerity that was advocated in satire. So uh, let me take one step back and talk a little bit about the satirist. Because the, the common, totally wrong, Renaissance etymology of the word satirist was that he came from the satyr, so the antagonist of the, of the, the shepherd you know, in, in the pastoral mm-hmm. world. And there were satirists that portrayed themselves as satyrs, you know, Aretino, right? Yeah. Who right, had, right, as a satyr, yeah, right. As a satyr, exactly. Um, so the satyr was, was, you know, uncouth, brutally honest, but fundamentally genuine. Um, and the pastoral, especially in the form of pastoral drama, thrives as satire loses ground for, for a variety of reasons that we briefly hinted at earlier. So the savior is presented as the antagonist to the shepherd, and the shepherd represents the ideal virtues of the courtier, as I was saying. Um, but yet, there are, in this representation, what is missing are the unflattering aspects of satire, the low mm-hmm. language and sometimes the violence of satire. So the point of my last chapter is that the shepherd becomes, as I said, the ideal courtier minus the vices because he's genuine, he's natural, he's sincere, etc. And the shepherd community becomes the ideal court community minus, again, the vices and the evil aspects. These shepherds live sort of, you know, utopian harmony, more or less. There is a crisis, but at the end it gets resolved, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There is conflict, but it's well, this is why it's a tragic comedy. Um, and so w- what disappears from this, from the scene, is the satyr, that is to say satire. So satire is sacrificed on the, on the altar of this utopian con- conciliation of court values and of anti-court sentiments. Which um, I think the pastoral theater addresses pretty openly at a certain point, right, where the satyrs complain of the courtiers yeah 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 in their competition i mean one thing that comes to mind as you mentioned this is the is the passivity of the court of the shepherds um so if they are idealized they're often idealized as quite passive i mean one thinks of the minta mm-hmm. right yeah as being passive and unable to actually accomplish his his goals and and if that is if if, if that scene is ideal as it, then it's it all, it's somehow, you know, in your reading here, and I hadn't thought about this till now, it, it, it almost sounds as if there's an idealization of the submissive oh, yeah. courtier. Absolutely. So um, there's a, um, there are many studies that point out that um, shepherds are an ideal self-representation for the courtiers because they represent people who have no control over their own lives whose lives are managed by someone in power, the gods or, you know, these random masters that they, they may mention. It's often, you know, some deity that, you know, someone else. So, yeah, there is this passivity. There is this, this loss of control, right? But at the same time, everything is kind of, is kind of removed. So another aspect that makes the pastoral very fascinating is how it tackles problematic issues without problematizing them and kind of kind of kind of removing the problems you know, in enacting a sort of Freudian emotion of conflict 
uh, negativity of vice that pops up, you know, violence pops up in the figure of the satyr sometimes or in the figure of this contrast that you may have, uh, these, you know, rotten apples in the shepherd community that in the end, <laughs> however, are, are marginalized, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I, I have to say, I have enjoyed this conversation very, very much, but I think we've I've taken Thank a you. lot of time. Um, so but before we close, would you would you tell us what you're working on next? Absolutely. So um, my research on satire led me to develop an interest in the topic of sincerity, because as mm. I said, satire is all about sincerity. Uh, and the satirist represents himself as the only sincere man in a world of liars. Um, and there are studies on the notion of the, the evolution of, of our modern notion of sincerity. According to these studies, um, the modern notion of sincerity in, as a moral value originated precisely in, in the Renaissance. Um, while before that, sincere was used only to describe, for example, a wine that was pure and adulterated and not yeah, the term was not used to describe you I, I know, something more. I think I'll use more. it at my next dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> a very sincere Cabernet from California. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I found fascinating that this evolution of the notion of sincerity in the moral terms happened in the age of simulation and dissimulation, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this push towards simulating, dissimulating, and covering the truth. So what was the relationship of early modern culture to, to truth and to sincerity? And also, we get to the age of the birth of Galilean science, mm -hmm. uh, a new meaning of the concept of truth, right, in a scientific sense. So mathematics as the language of nature, the language that makes us understand the truth, the true facts about nature. So um, um Fascinated also by the figure of the scientist in relationship to issues of sincerity and credibility. How does a scientist construct for themselves a credible persona, the persona of somebody who's sincere, who's actually saying the truth? You know, think of what's happening right now with Dr. Fauci, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And him saying, no, but I'm basing what I say on science. I'm basing, you know, my credibility of, on true facts. I'm being sincere. And people are saying, well, how do we know? that what the scientists are saying is actually the truth, that they are actually being honest with us and they are not covering up for, I don't, we don't know what, right? So I, what I want to do in my next project is to get to the roots of this entire phenomenon, so the intersection between sincerity, truth, and credibility. Credibility also in, the, in a scientific sense. Uh, so this is a brand new project. I don't know if you heard, but I'm kind of confused about it. But anyway, we'll see where it takes me. No, it sounds, <laughs> I mean, it sounds fascinating anyway, but I have to say with, as you mentioned, what's going on now, maybe you can solve all of our 21st century problems. And that would be <laughs> don't count on me. I'm just a girl who dreams of <laughs> going to the pastoral world. Ah, yeah, well. Uh, Paula, it's been a real pleasure, and I just want to thank you again for this wonderful Likewise. conversation. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Bye. Bye-bye.